Welcome to Music History Monday for February 26th, 2024. I'm Bob Greenberg, and the title for today's podcast is Too Late to Matter for Georges Bizet, Though Better Late Than Never for the Rest of Us. If you haven't already, please consider joining me on my subscription site at patreon.com slash robertgreenbergmusic, where I blog, vlog, podcast, pontificate, review, and bloviate four to six times a week. We mark the premiere on February 26, 1935, 89 years ago today, of Georges Bizet's Symphony in C. The premiere took place in Basel, Switzerland, in a performance conducted by Felix Weingartner, 1863-1942. Bizet, 1838-1875, never heard the symphony performed. He had died in the Paris suburbs in 1875 at the age of 36, a full 60 years before Weingartner's premiere of his symphony. Bizet's Symphony in C, considered today to be a masterwork, was only discovered in the archives of the Paris Conservatoire in 1933, 78 years after its composition in 1855. What if? We contemplate a short list of those great or potentially great composers who died before their 40th birthday. Henry Purcell, dead at 36. Giovanni Battista Pergolesi, 26. Wolfgang Mozart, 35. Vincenzo Bellini, 33. Frederick Chopin, 39. Felix Mendelssohn, 38. Lily Boulanger, 24. Juan Arriaga, 19 and George Gershwin, who died at the age of 38. We should all deeply regret their early passing, not just because of the inherent tragedy of dying so young, but because it is impossible not to think about what these composers might have accomplished had they at least lived Beethoven's lifespan, 56 years, or Sebastian Bach's, 65 years, or Richard Strauss's, 85 years, or Elliot Carter's, 103 years, or Leo Ornstein's, 106 years, though some say 109. Admittedly, not everyone wonders about what those short-lived composers might have accomplished had they lived longer lives. For example, Apropos of Franz Schubert, Robert Schumann, who himself didn't live a particularly long life, 1810 to 1856, wrote, quote, It is pointless to guess at what more Schubert might have achieved. He did enough, and let them be honored who have striven and accomplished as he did, unquote. Rather more recently, the pianist Andras Schiff, born 1953, said that, quote, Schubert lived a very short life, but it was a very concentrated life. In 31 years, he composed more than other people would, 
in a hundred years, and it is needless to speculate what he could have written had he lived another fifty years. It's irrelevant, just like with Mozart." Unquote. At very least, I would accuse Mr. Schumann and Schiff of being intellectual party poopers by denying themselves the joys of speculation. But I also believe their assertions that speculation is pointless, needless, and irrelevant to be downright wrong. Why wrong? Because speculating on what if allows us to formulate alternative outcomes, alternative outcomes that in the end help us to recognize and process more deeply what actually did occur. Of course, if the American theoretical physicist and string theorist Brian Greene is correct, and we live in a quilted multiverse, then any possible event will occur an infinite number of times in an infinite number of parallel universes. If this is true, there is no such thing as speculation, as anything we might speculate upon will already have occurred or will occur in some universe or another. Back to our cozy home universe. To my mind, far from being merely sport, speculating on possible outcomes allows us to sharpen our understanding of what actually did happen and to appreciate as well the incredible web of interactive cause and effect that characterizes the progress of time. For example, what if Georges Bizet had lived another 30 years until 1905 and had died at the age of 67? He might very well have decided to compose another symphony, or another two symphonies, or another three symphonies, or whatever. Based on what we now know to be his symphony in C, those subsequent symphonies would almost certainly have been terrific works. Had Bizet lived even a few more months, the fame and fortune that just eluded him in his lifetime, more on this in a bit, would have been his for the taking, and a work like the Symphony in C would likely not have languished in an archive for all those years. Idle speculation? Yes, of course but it helps us to understand just how special Bizet's Symphony in C really is, and just how unfair was its fate. Georges Bizet, 1838-1875 Alexandre César Leopold Georges Bizet was born in Paris on October 25, 1838, and died in the Paris suburb of Bougival, on June 3rd, 1875. He was a spectacular child prodigy as both a pianist and as a musician, which are often sadly two very different things. He was accepted at the Paris Conservatoire when he was still nine years old, his talent having convinced the admissions committee to waive what had been an ironclad policy of only admitting students 10 years and older. Within six months, he was already beginning to stack up departmental prizes, 
and in 1852, at the still tender age of 14, he garnered the Conservatoire's first prize in piano. This is after having won the second prize the previous year at the age of 13. Parenthetically, I would tell you that Bizet's professors and fellow students all believed that his future was on the concert stage. But Georges seems to have been almost embarrassed by his abilities as a pianist. According to one unnamed classmate, Bizet chose to hide his talent as a pianist, quote, as though it were a vice, unquote. We can get an idea of just how good a pianist Bizet was from an event that took place in May of 1861. That was when the still 22-year-old Bizet gave what was called a rare demonstration of his virtuoso skills at a dinner party at which the great Franz Liszt was the guest of honor. Bizet blew the assembled worthies out of the water, Liszt included, when he flawlessly sight-read what was described as, quote, one of Liszt's most difficult piano works, unquote, from a handwritten manuscript. Liszt's response was recorded, quote, I thought there were only two men able to surmount the difficulties. There are three, and the youngest is perhaps the boldest and most brilliant, unquote. Yeah, I wish I knew who was the other pianist Liszt was referring to. Symphony in C. Bizet's Symphony in C was written as a homework assignment for his conservatoire composition teacher, Charles Gounod, 1818 to 1893. Gounod had just completed his own Symphony in D, a work that proved to be quite popular. To make some extra cash, Bizet arranged the symphony for two pianos for Gounod's publisher, and in doing so was inspired to compose a symphony of his own. Bizet began work on his symphony on October 29, 1855, four days after his 17th birthday, and completed it some four weeks later in late November. We can assume that he submitted it to Gounod that Gounod read it through, nodded his head, and handed the score back to Bizet, after which Bizet seems to have forgotten all about it, as if it were just another classroom exercise. Bizet made no mention of the symphony in any of his letters, and he seemed to show virtually no interest in having it performed or published. His earliest biographers didn't even know the symphony existed. Now, there's been all sorts of speculation as to why Bizet felt so disconnected from what was his first symphony. According to some, Bizet suppressed the symphony because he believed it to be far too derivative of Gounod's Symphony in D, the work he, Bizet, had arranged for two pianos. Others assert that there was a general bias against symphonies built into the culture of the Paris Conservatoire, quote, which considered the symphony to be, as in the case of Bizet's own, a mere student exercise, unquote. The success of Gounod's own symphony in D, notwithstanding, it was Charles Gounod himself 
who observed that in Paris, quote, there is only one way for a composer who desires to make a real name, the operatic stage, unquote. And for all of the orchestral chamber and keyboard music Georges Bizet composed, that was the path, the operatic stage, that he chose to pursue. Despite his phenomenal talent, despite having won the coveted Prix de Rome, the Rome Prize, which included a two-year residency in Rome, which Bizet loved, he had to struggle like the rest of us once his Rome Prize money ran out. He taught piano, worked as a rehearsal pianist for opera and ballet companies, and transcribed almost countless opera and ballet scores for the piano. Bizet served a difficult post-conservatoire apprenticeship. His first six operas remained unperformed at the time of his death. His seventh opera, entitled The Pearl Fishers, 1863, is often referred to as his first opera, but that's only because it was the first one to be performed at Paris's Théâtre Lyrique on September 30th, 1863. Seven more operas followed, though only two of them were completed and performed in Bizet's lifetime. All in all, his was a relatively unsuccessful operatic career, at least until 1874, when, at the age of 36, he completed Carmen. Carmen, fame and fortune, but both too late for Bizet. Carmen, how do we love thee? Let us alphabetize the ways. Astounding, brilliant, celebrated, dazzling, exceptional, first-rate, glorious, hellaciously fine, incredible, and justly famous, although you wouldn't have known it from its initial reviews. First performed on March 3, 1875 at the Opera Comique in Paris, Carmen was slammed for being too Wagnerian. Yeah, critics complained that the voices were subordinated to the orchestra. Amoral, because the title character was a sluttish libertine, a veritable female Don Giovanni, and not a woman of virtue, and that the music itself was boring. For example, according to Leon Escudier, writing in L'Art Musicale, the music of Carmen, quote, is dull and obscure. The ear grows weary of waiting for the cadence that never comes, unquote. Eat cow patties, dude. The reviews kept audiences away, and what small audiences did attend the opera's first run remained unenthusiastic. If it is possible to die from a broken heart, Bizet did. He dropped dead from a heart attack on June 3, 1875, three months to the day after Carmen received its premiere. Bizet's sudden death is cause for deep regret, because in one of those nasty twists of fate, of which there are no small number, Carmen's fame was right around the corner. Just days before he died, a downcast Georges Bizet had signed a contract to produce Carmen in Vienna. 
The opera opened in Vienna on October 23, 1875, four and one half months after Bizet died, and it was a smash hit. Richard Wagner heard it and wrote, quote, Here, thank God, at last for a change is somebody with ideas in his head, unquote. Richard Wagner and Johannes Brahms rarely agreed on anything, but they did agree on Carmen. Brahms reportedly saw the opera 20 times and wrote that he would have, quote, gone to the ends of the earth to embrace Bizet, unquote. Again, Johannes Brahms and Peter Tchaikovsky rarely agreed on anything, but they also agreed on Carmen. Tchaikovsky wrote, quote, Carmen is a masterpiece in every sense of the word, one of those rare creations which expresses the efforts of a whole musical epoch, unquote. The German Chancellor Otto von Bismarck, 1815 to 1898, claimed to have seen Carmen 27 times. The philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, 1844 to 1900, wrote that he, quote, becomes a better man when Bizet speaks to me, unquote. Carmen remains one of the most popular operas in the repertoire, and for good reason. The music is glorious, the characters are beautifully drawn, and in it, Bizet displays the same miraculous ability as Mozart and Verdi to make us, his audience, engage and identify with the emotions and the pain felt by his characters. With the passing of time, we as an audience have come to realize that Bizet was surely not the one-hit wonder, that one hit being Carmen, he was considered to be in the years following his death. His unperformed music has been performed, and music that no one even knew existed, like his Symphony in C, has been discovered, performed, and celebrated. Discovery The student assignment that is Bizet's Symphony in C, composed in 1855, took a circuitous route on its way to its premiere in 1935. Bizet's widow, Geneviève Halevi, 1849-1926, found the manuscript among her late husband's papers and gave it to the Venezuelan-born French composer, conductor, music critic, and singer, Rinaldo Hahn, 1874-1947. Hahn, in turn, gave the manuscript to the Paris Conservatoire, where it was squirreled away in some dark corner of its archive. That's where it was discovered in 1933 by the French musicologist Jean Chantavoine, 1877-1952. to 1952. Monsieur Chantavoine announced the discovery in the influential French music journal La Ménestrale, an article that almost instantly came to the attention of Bizet's first British biographer, Douglas Charles Parker, 1885 to 1970. Parker hightailed it across the English Channel, and having acquired what we imagined to be a copy of the manuscript, brought it to the attention of the conductor Felix Weingartner, 
who gave the symphony its belated premiere 89 years ago today. Talk about too late to matter, at least for poor Georges Bizet. The symphony was instantly acclaimed to be a youthful masterwork considered on par with Felix Mendelssohn's Overture to a Midsummer Night's Dream, which Mendelssohn composed in 1826 when he was, as well, 17 years old. Bizet's Symphony in C rapidly became part of the standard symphonic repertoire, where it remains to this day. For our information, it was first recorded in 1937 by the London Philharmonic, conducted by Walter Gore. 1903 to 1957. Better late than never, we suppose. Thank you. To sample and download one or all of my many courses on subjects musical produced by The Great Courses slash The Teaching Company, please visit my website at robertgreenbergmusic.com.